Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 549th show of ROI. Our guest today is Dr. Patricia Strach, professor and undergraduate director in the Department of Political Science at the University of Albany. We're going to talk about her book with Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, The Politics of Trash, How Governments Used Corruption to Clean Cities, 1890 to 1929. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. Um, Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So first of all, welcome to the show, Patricia. Thank you for having me. We are very excited uh, to have you here and and learn about um, how our cities became cleaner. So with that in mind, then, start us off a little bit and give us a sense of what an American city would have looked or smelt like uh, toward the end of the 19th century. Well, the 19th century cities were not pleasant places to live. They were very, very dirty, and they were very, very smelly. So you would have human waste running through the sides of the streets in the gutters or open sewers. You would have animal waste. So if a horse died, it would be left in the streets. You would have trash um, either just thrown into the streets or put in barrels on the streets. Um, And you would have like uh, waste from industries such as butcher shops and other kinds of um, factories. So the streets would actually be really difficult to walk down and in some places they would be impassable. So the way we think about streets today are not the way streets were during this time. And along with all the, you know, the, the dirt and the waste came, you know, very, very noxious odors. They smelled terrible. So women would walk around with handkerchiefs with, you know, nice smelling things on them to kind of help them get through the streets. So if we think about what a city looks like today and we were to, to rewind, we would find that they were very dirty places that commerce had a really difficult time because it was hard to get goods uh, through the streets. And we would also find that there would be places where disease spread. And so in the 19th century, uh, the, the, they call it the urban penalty. People, the mortality rates were much higher and people lived much shorter lives in urban areas compared to rural. Sure. So I guess the obvious question is, given how bad this, you know, the, the conditions are, did people simply accept this as the status quo? Was there always sort of a, a, a underground or maybe not so underground churn to try to get things cleaned up? And, and if that was the case, uh, why didn't it seem to be very successful? Well, this was just the normal way of getting things done. So when at, the, at this time, you know, people are moving to American cities, they're growing very rapidly but they're not developing the infrastructure they need to to deal with all the people who are moving there. So you have a situation where the traditional ways of getting rid of trash, which are uh, burying it in the backyard, burning it or feeding it to hogs, just don't work anymore when you have so many people living in such a crowded space. And there were kind of these individual arrangements, kind of more informal arrangements where scavengers might come through and an individual might have them pick up their trash. They might pick up business trash. Farmers might come through and collect garbage to feed to their uh, pigs. Sometimes pigs just roamed the city and ate garbage. 
So they, you know, this was kind of an acceptable way. And people were really used to getting rid of their trash this way. They were used to throwing it in the streets. They were not used to kind of all the ways that we have today. So there was a high tolerance for the uh, smell. There was a high tolerance for the disease, in part because the practices that they relied on were kind of just the normal way people got things done. And it wasn't the case that we didn't know or that sanitarians at the time didn't know there was a better way, but it was really hard because one of the, the really interesting about, things about trash, it, it isn't a policy that takes place on a high level. It requires every single individual living in a city to change their behavior. And so there was a great tolerance from people who just were used to throwing their trash out or burying it in their backyard or piling it in a neighbor's yard to keep doing it that way. And it was politically really difficult to kind of put in place programs that was going to ask people to change their beliefs. So the status quo, the normal way of getting things done had a lot of longevity and staying power. Okay, so this is our, our last question. We only have about a minute left, so I just want to sort of set a stage. So can you give us a, a quick and dirty uh, sort of what what changed? Why, why do we start to see uh, the development of uh, sanitation systems and so forth? You know, where, how, how did that ultimately, what's the catalyst? So sanitarians at this time, these are public health professionals, are really advocating for public health programs for decades. And they kind of get pushed aside because at this time, many city governments are corrupt and they don't want a bunch of do-gooder public health people coming in and telling them what to do. And it's when these governments realize that they can either enrich themselves or kind of fortify their political power that they take on these programs. So it's corruption that kind of builds political will and in some cases is the capacity that governments have to get that done. All right. Well, we certainly have a lot of interesting things to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next section of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Smokey the Bear. Then you know why Smokey tells you when he sees you passing through. Remember, please be careful. It's the least that you can do. <laughs> After 80 years of learning his wildfire prevention tips, Smokey Bear lives within us all. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com and remember, only you can prevent wildfires. Brought to you by the USDA Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Patricia Stratch, professor and undergraduate director in the Department of Political Science at the University of Albany. And we're going to be talking about her book with Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, titled The Politics of Trash, How Governments Used Corruption to Clean Cities from 1880, 1890 to 1929. Our history buffs for today are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. Brett, you seem to me like the perfect person to start us off this time. You know, I will always 
take advantage of the opportunity to be trashy. (laughs) (laughs) So the title of the book is How Governments Use Corruption to Clean Cities. So let's jump right in. Politics, where do we find corruption? I've never heard of corruption being associated with politics before, especially city politics. So where do we find corruption in the 19th century American cities? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that it's it's <laughs> everywhere you look and turn over a leaf. Yeah, so corruption is really prevalent in 19th century American cities. And one of the things that Kathleen and I found that we weren't expecting is that it looks very different depending on the city. So it isn't just that there's corruption. Corruption takes different forms. And so in a place like Pittsburgh, corruption comes in the form of a political machine. And the machine is the Republican Party boss and the uh, city treasurer, and they kind of form this political machine. Now, the party boss owns a uh, street paving company. So what you see happening in Pittsburgh is lots of public works, lots of the kinds of things that we're running around saying this is what government should be doing. They should put in clean water pipes. They should be paving the streets. But they're not doing it because this is the right thing to do or this is good for public health. They're doing it because every time they rip up a street to put in a water pipe, they have to repave it and they give themselves the contract to do that. So corruption in Pittsburgh looks really different than corruption in New Orleans, in which you have a very weak governing um, regime, and they can't hold on to power. And so what they're doing is they're giving out patronage jobs through corruption. They're using patronage jobs, and they're doing that to collect trash. And there's very little evidence that trash is ever picked up in any meaningful way. And I think that they call uh, New Orleans the filthiest hole in the land. (laughs) It is a really dirty city. So in these two different ways, in these two different forms of corruption, you see that, yes, corruption matters. Corruption is what's, you know, driving a lot of the desire to to put in place these programs. But it looks different depending on what, what the city is. And they're using it for different ends. But in both cases, they're using it to kind of make themselves better off. Sure. Rick. Patricia, I, uh, in my past, worked for a city government out in the Southwest, and uh, the history of that, uh, uh, of the public works for that city, uh, was rather intriguing, and it didn't go back. the The city was only founded in nineteen oh, I think it was like nineteen oh six, but when you're talking about eighteen ninety to nineteen twenty nine. What was a typical public works structure in any of these major cities? Did they, in fact, have a public works department that dealt with sidewalks, streets, uh, et cetera, et cetera? No. And this was what was really interesting because Kathleen and I showed up at our first archive and we looked for a Department of Public Works and we couldn't find anything on garbage because it wasn't housed in public works. It was housed in um, under health at the time. So you, what you have at the time are things like, you know, uh, there's a Department of Streets, there's, you know, Department of Light, there's Department of Health, and these different departments, because it was the sanitarians kind of coming in and saying, we need to do these things, we need to improve public health, that, the, that it comes in these different departments, and then later in time it kind of gets pushed into Department of Public Works. 
So, yes, there are some cities with public works, for sure, and this is a key source of um, patronage jobs. But it wasn't it wasn't what we had anticipated. We thought every city was going to have a Department of Public Works and that's where garbage would be. And that was not uh, the case at all. So, Patricia, this sounds a little bit I, I don't know anything about public works, but I do know a fair bit about how police departments and fire departments uh, first developed in in um, American cities. And it sounds very similar. A lot of patronage, a lot of cronyism going on, um, a lot of manipulation and using the police for things that they, you know, outside of public safety, so forth and and so on. Um, So as as these systems start to develop and and they they look differently in different cities, how does this translate? Because that's a 30 year time period, I assume, folks are coming in and out of power how do those things are there are there turf wars that start happening at at one point where you know one group or one family is trying to corner the market while another one's inroading how much of this sort of free-for-all is is going on so actually what what happens is they they these governments develop these trash collection programs Lots of times, as I was saying, these are corrupt governments, and they're not doing it in the highest possible standards in terms of ethical standards for government provision. And so what happens is reformers come in and they want to get rid of corruption. And so they, you know, kick out the the corrupt governing body, the corrupt regime. They get rid of the corrupt contractors. And this is what happens in St. Louis. They cut off the contracts to this very corrupt individual and then they have no capacity to collect trash. So one thing that happens is because these corrupt governments are often the first movers and the ones that create these programs, that they're needed for a very long time. So even after the reformers come in, they don't have the ability to create new programs. They don't have the ability to create new um, infrastructure. They don't have the wagons and the know-how often to collect trash. So in Pittsburgh, for example, they keep using, remember this party boss? Well, he creates a reduction company that his brother runs, which is really just a front for him. And the reformers come in, the corrupt individuals leave, and they still use that same company for decades to collect trash because they don't have the ability to do it on their own. In St. Louis, they get rid of this corrupt contractor, and nobody else knows how to collect trash or to dispose or has the capacity to dispose of it. And so they're running around. They buy an island in the, in the middle of the Mississippi River. They put, <laughs> put the garbage on the island. They move some hogs in to eat the trash. And eventually the island becomes covered. And they start dumping it in the river again. Right? So they, they just don't have the capacity. So what we see happening is, is less turf wars between contractors um, and more uh, an example of you have uh, corrupt regimes and then reform regimes and the reformer regimes that come in aren't necessarily able to kind of clean house as much as they'd want to because they need the capacity that these corrupt individuals have. Sure. Rick. Patricia, the, the, um, the title of the book includes uh, Use Corruptions to Clean Up Cities. How did you, what happened to make a sea change to clean up cities, uh, get the garbage off the streets and out of the gutters? 
Well, the first thing that happened here, I talked about this political will, right? So these governments have to decide that this is a problem that they want to take on because the residents aren't necessarily running around saying, okay, you need to fix this problem. The sanitarians, these public health officials are saying this is a problem we need to fix. And when these corrupt officials, when they come into to governing power or once they're once they decide, hey, I can, you know, entrench my advantage as a governing body, I can keep myself in power, right? In New Orleans they're gonna do this by giving patronage out. Then they decide that this is the strategy that they're going to take. And when in Pittsburgh they're like, wow, we can make a ton of money by contracting out to ourselves, then they decide that this is an issue that they're going to take on, right? So it takes this, you know, one thing that corruption did in the 19th century was build political will to do the right thing. So they're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, but they're still, you know, accomplishing what is a pretty important public health goal. So the first thing they do is they build political will. The second thing they do is they have to build capacity. They have to figure out how exactly they're going to get this done. And then they have to find the resources to do it. So picking up trash isn't such a huge problem, just requires some wagons. Um, That's not very hard. But it is hard to figure out how to dispose of it. And if they're going to build these very expensive plants that burn garbage, someone's going to have to pay a lot of money. So lots of time, these corrupt contractors, knowing that they were going to get the contract, would invest lots of money in these very expensive um, infrastructure to dispose of trash. So that's like kind of what gets them started. But what kind of holds this process up over time is, uh, you know, the key piece that I was talking about earlier is that individuals have to buy into it. (laughs) They were not happy to change their behavior. They were not happy to be told they have to buy a particular container. They have to put it out a particular time in a particular place. They had to sort their garbage in a particular way. All the things we do without thinking, oh, look, I'm, you know, operating under intense governmental power, they were very aware of, and they very much didn't want to to take part in it. Okay, Brett. So you talk about how there's these local corrupt groups that start uh, dealing with garbage. So how corrupt are we talking? Are we talking for an extra five bucks I'll dump? Uh, the city's trash at your political opponent's front door, or <laughs> is this just kind of the more run-of-the-mill grift where I'm just looking for a way to make a buck and I'll I'll deal with the issue. You just have to pay a little extra. Yeah. So yeah. it was the case that people would have to pay a little bit extra, and that extra went into these corrupt politicians or contractors pockets so that's really one way that uh corruption worked and then you know other cases so corruption was very expensive in terms of it added cost to everybody's um bills in terms of what they had to pay so it did it did work you know to make things more expensive and it was you know one of the things that kathleen and i found by looking at all of these different cities is that it did operate based on the structure of kind of the informal governing regime, the corrupt regime that was running the city. So depending on what that regime looked like, then the form of corruption would differ and then the form of garbage collection would differ because garbage collection was always in service to this broader goal that these, you know, corrupt actors had. 
Patricia, I'm interested because you've mentioned them several times. Who are these sanitarians or these reformers? Um, is there a national, some sort of a national movement that's going on that's filtering down? Is this kind of a critical mass where people just get, you know, where at least some group of people get, get sort of frustrated? Uh, is this the medical profession that's pushing because they're seeing all of those side effects? Who are these guys, and are there a couple of them that whose names we should know? Yeah, they, they are. They're coming from... You know, this is a, a movement in the 19th century that's happening in Europe and happening in the United States because people are dying in cities at very high rates. And there's every time cholera, there's a cholera epidemic or a typhoid fever epidemic or a yellow fever epidemic, people stop and say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. Maybe we should do something about, you know, the filth that's in cities. And then as soon as that epidemic passes, they say, okay, we're going to move on. We're not going to think about this. But the individuals kind of on the ground who are saying, this is a problem. We need to think about this in a more sustained fashion. We can't just throw our attention every, you know, three or four years when a deadly epidemic comes through. Those are sanitarians. And these are public health professionals. Lots of times they're um, originally mostly physicians. And so they're seeing what's happening they don't know exactly. At this, at this time, people don't have a real sense of what's causing disease, right? They're trying to figure it out. There isn't the, the germ theory. They're not able to identify bacteria. So they have these ideas that it's like bad air is causing people to get sick and die. And so along with this idea that, you know, there's bad air, that, you know, we have to deal with some of the disease epidemics, they kind of take two strategies. One is that we should quarantine. We should keep people who you know, have a particular disease away from other people. And the second one that they want to do is they want to clean up cities. They want uh, sewer systems so there isn't waste flowing through those cities and then being dumped into the drinking water supply, which is exactly what happened. They want, you know, to pick up garbage. They want clean water coming into the cities. They want to inspect for milk, you know, to make sure that it's not um, painted. So they have a number of reforms that they're looking at that they want to put in place. And garbage is one of those kind of broader reforms that they're looking to do. And so, yes, they're running around. They're, they're seeing the problem. They create the American Public Health Association, a national organization, so they can talk to each other and kind of bounce strategies off each other. And this is thing, uh, people like George Waring out of New York City is very famous. Um, Charles Chapin, who collected data across the United States about different uh, public health practices, the, the things that they were interested in collecting data to show there was a problem and then coming up with public health solutions to, to uh, address those problems. Okay, we have about two minutes left. So, Rick, you get the last question here. Wow, gee whiz. Uh, Patricia, you mentioned earlier about uh, behaviors, changing behaviors and cultures. How much impact is the immigrant wave coming into the United States with their different behaviors and cultures uh, exacerbate this uh, this trash problem? Well, it, happened, it did exacerbate the trash problem in one way, and then they were blamed in another way. So one thing that happened was uh, immigrants were coming into cities, therefore they were increasing the congestion, right? So the more people that come to cities, the bigger the trash problem you're going to have, regardless of where those people are from. So that was one really big kind of driver of, of the need for sanitation in cities. 
But the second thing was that they were being blamed. So these sanitarians and other other officials were blaming immigrants, blaming people of color for disease outbreaks, saying, you know, well, it's because they're dirty people that this is where disease is spreading, and not that these are neighborhoods in which most of the filth is being placed or not being picked up from, or that there is no clean water. I was just reading a statistic that New York City put in place a requirement that landlords had to have a privy, an outhouse for every 20-something residents that lived in a building. So the, the, the crowding and then the lack of sanitation was really striking in terms of the neighborhoods they were living in, and they were being blamed for, for the spread of disease there. Sure. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Patricia, why do you think knowing about the development of modern trash collection systems in the U.S. is relevant in today's world? I think what's most amazing when we were doing this research is that, you know, our colleagues, other political scientists, were telling us that this is not politics, that this is not political. And this was bringing down mayoral administrations. Residents were kind of uh, revolting against these reforms. They didn't like them. And so what had been so controversial to bring down government is something that we now do without thinking about it at all. We all roll our trash bins out on a Thursday night um, in the right place at the right time using the correct bin, having been sorted the right way, and we don't even think about it as politics, and we don't even think that this is government authority that is having us do these things. And so today, the very same kind of ways we collect trash and the ways we dispose of trash are not that different from what they were in the uh, 19th century after these reforms were put into place. We use big garbage trucks instead of horses and carts. But the basic idea and the basic technologies are the same. And so all the dirty politics that got put into those trash collection programs when they were created kind of still exist um, till today. I'm going to add into that two other caveats. First of all, I think we tend to, to look at the past and say those guys are really this, that, or the other thing, corrupt or dirty or whatever. Um, and, and we're not like that, but it sure feels to me like if you look around pretty much any town over the size of about 500, the opportunity for political corruption and this kind of cronyism and nepotism is, is alive and very much, uh, well in, in modern life, just as it was a hundred years ago. Um, and then I'll just sort of end with the comment that we certainly, again, we haven't learned very much. Think of how we have responded to COVID, you know, which was the, the, the last big, you know, the first big, big serious epidemic that we had had in a long time. You know, we were, we went crazy at the beginning and now we sort of pretend that it doesn't exist anymore and it could never happen again. That'll be a hundred years. Um, so, you know, Sometimes um, history, you know, unfortunately, we do repeat what, what's been going on, and, and it's still uh, very much part of who we are as humans. Uh, at any rate, we have, uh, we're going to come back and wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI at KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 549th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker, program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. It was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Patricia Stratch, professor and undergraduate director in the Department of Political Science at the University of Albany. We've been talking about her book, The Politics of Trash, How Governments Used Corruption to Clean Cities from 1890 to 1929. History buffs for today were Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.